Welcome to Ready to Recover, a podcast series in which guest experts take a closer look at what people may experience when seeking to finance their recovery after a damaging earthquake. These discussions consider common challenges and options, including what can be done to prepare before disaster strikes. This podcast series is produced by CREW at CREW.org with funding from the National Earthquake Hazards Reduction Program. Taking steps to strengthen buildings before an earthquake strikes can lessen damage and improve recovery afterwards. In this episode, five experts look at the costs, options, and challenges of investing in seismic retrofitting, and they describe how retrofitting programs can help. Our guest host for this podcast is Amanda Hertzfeld, who is the Unreinforced Masonry Retrofit Program Manager for the City of Seattle, tasked with developing and implementing the policies required to retrofit unreinforced masonry structures, also known as URMs. She is joined in this podcast discussion by Janiel Maffei, Chief Mitigation Officer and Director of Research at California Earthquake Authority and Manager of the California Residential Mitigation Program, including the Earthquake Brace and Bolt Residential Retrofit Program and Jessica Chappell, a licensed professional structural engineer in Utah and Alaska and principal at Structural Design Studio in Salt Lake City, Utah, where she currently volunteers with the Utah Seismic Safety Commission, the Structural Engineers Association of Utah Board, Envision Utah and the Cottonwood Heights City Planning Commission. And finally, Cheyenne Hugo and Barb Tobin, who are the Community Development Grant Specialists for Salt Lake City's Fix the Bricks program which provides funding to Salt Lake City homeowners that live in unreinforced masonry homes to help them cover the costs of seismic retrofits. Again, my name is Amanda Hertzfeld. I'm with the City of Seattle and I am the unreinforced masonry uh, program manager working to create um, a mandatory retrofit ordinance in the city. We'll be the first jurisdiction outside of California to require that. And um, I wanted to first just thank CREW, uh, Cascadia Reduction Earthquake Working Group, for uh, doing this podcast series. I think it's a really great idea. And then I'll just throw out a thank you to NEHRP, the National Earthquake Hazard Reduction Program, that is a group composed of FEMA, the USGS, the US Geologic Survey, uh, NIST, the National Institute for, is it science? Standards, standards and technology, and um, the National Science Foundation as well. So um, I would like to go around and do a quick round of introductions. Maybe you can uh, introduce yourself and tell us how you got here. Did you think that you would end up as a person with a career in earthquakes? Um, so let's start with uh, Janelle and then we'll, we'll go around from there. Hi, this is Janelle Maffei. I'm a structural engineer and I am the Chief Mitigation Officer at the California Earthquake Authority and manage mitigation programs that include grant programs for the seismic retrofit of certain seismic vulnerabilities in single family wood frame structures. Thanks, Janelle. Let's go to Jessica. My name is Jessica Chapel, and I am a structural uh, engineer working in consulting. Uh, for a firm by the name of Structural Design Studio uh, here in Salt Lake. And I've been in consulting for about 20 years. I also participate in the Utah Seismic Safety Commission. And, uh, you know, I you asked, Amanda, about uh, how I got here. Um, I definitely did think I'd be working with earthquakes. And you know, I learned about structural engineering as a career in high school. 
Um, and I followed a pretty direct path uh, to, to my seat here in the consulting world. Um, as for seismic safety and community resilience work, I don't think I knew there was such a risk to loss of life uh, along the Wasatch Front. So that aspect of, of my career is certainly unexpected. And, uh, and that's why I'm here. Glad to be with you. We're glad to have you here, Jessica. Let's go to Barbara. Hello, my name is Barb Tobin, and um, I work with Salt Lake City Corporation, and I am a grant administrator over a program that's called Fix the Bricks. And basically the Fix the Bricks program, what it does is um, we have FEMA funding, and that FEMA funding um, provides seismic upgrades to unreinforced masonry homes. And so we do roof-to-wall attachments as well as chimney bracing within that program. Um, as far as ever being involved in the earthquake world, um, not me, I didn't anticipate that at all. Um, I was in a previous grant program. I was a grant administrator for a different program with Salt Lake City. And when we took over the Fix the Bricks program, part of one of the things that really um, made me want to apply for this position and work with it was the opportunity to get out and um, you'll hear from my colleague in just one second, Cheyenne, but we have the opportunity to go meet with the homeowners. We meet with the homeowners. We work with the structural engineer who's under contract with the city. And we also have the opportunity to work with the contractors that actually get out and do this work. So that was very exciting to me because it gives us the opportunity to directly work with these individuals and the homeowners that are so thankful for the program and so that is how I ended up in the earthquake world. I love that, Barb. Thanks. Uh, and Cheyenne, we'll go to you. Hello, I am Cheyenne Hugo. I am with Salt Lake City Corporation. I am a grant administrator as well for the Fix the Bricks program. Um, I definitely thought I would be in some type of earthquake job because I've got a few degrees in geology, physics, engineering. Um, and I worked for the city while I went to school for doing all this stuff. And so when they took over this program in my department, it was just the perfect fit. And then I got to work with Barb and we get to go out and do all the fun things she already said. So it is just perfect for us. Well, I am so happy you all are here today. Um, it's really nice to meet all of you. And um, I think it's really cool that we're all women, too. I think being being ladies in in the sciences, um, you know, the there's uh, there's not as many of us, especially in the earthquake world. So we are we're representing here today. Um, so I, I wanted to go over just a, a few things before we really jump into asking some questions. So uh, the this episode's topic is on preventing earthquake damage. And. For our listeners, you know, I think we've all heard about the big one, and depending where you live, the big one is different, right? So if you're in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm at, our Cascadia subduction zone fault, the giant fault spanning from Canada to Northern California, capable of causing, what, a magnitude nine earthquake and tsunami. Um, in California, you have the Hayward Fault and the San Andreas Fault, uh, with more than 70% of the state's population residing within 30 miles of a known fault where shaking could occur in the next 30 years. And uh, these faults are capable of producing in the magnitude 6 to 8 range. 
And then in Utah, where many people might not even realize there's an earthquake hazard, the Wasatch Fault runs along the western flank of the Wasatch Mountains, stretching from southern Idaho all the way down through SLC, Salt Lake City, uh, ending in central Utah. And this fault has a 43% chance of producing a magnitude six or greater earthquake. So uh, all of these earthquakes are capable of displacing households, of causing significant injuries, um, causing hospitalizations, economic losses, and millions of tons of debris and rubble, which would require the creation of new landfills. And I think it's important to note that while these big one scenarios can happen, albeit very infrequently, smaller earthquakes around magnitude 5.5 or so can cause most of the occurrences of strong shaking. So just probability wise, we're more likely to have a smaller earthquake than a larger one. And I'll steal some language from uh, the USGS's Sarah Minson here, um, but she suggests that we kind of rethink our perspective on earthquakes and rather than focusing on these big, big one doomsday scenarios, we kind of think about a sharks versus cows concept. So um, we know sharks are scary and cows are not, but cows kill more people than sharks do. And so we shouldn't become paralyzed by the depiction of these doomsday Sharknado scenarios when more probable and more manageable earthquake scenarios are within our control to mitigate. So we're here today to talk about ways to prevent earthquake damages uh, because Dwayne The Rock Johnson is incapable of rescuing everyone. And that movie ends without diving into all the broken things, the, built, the roads, the bridges, the homes that are demolished and rebuilt. So, um, you know, Without uh, further ado, let's chat with some leading ladies in earthquake risk reduction on uh, what we know breaks in an earthquake and how to prevent it from happening uh, before we're stranded and left waiting for the rock to rescue you in a stolen government helicopter. Uh, so with that, um, my first question is for uh, Janelle. And I'm wondering if you could briefly speak to the most common types of damages that homeowners, homeowners experience in an earthquake and what kind of retrofitting can be done to reduce that probability for damage. Well, it, it does vary geographically. Uh, I can say for the, the West Coast of the United States, uh, the vast majority of our residential construction is wood framed uh, with a little bit more mild temperature and lots of access to timber, of course. Uh, in the center of the country, of course, and, and going back east, of course, you see a lot of unreinforced masonry, which can be very, very serious. Um, but as a, a California structural engineer um, managing mitigation programs in California, uh, we worked with FEMA to create a document that identified the top four vulnerabilities in single-family wood frame dwellings. And so that would really qualify for the whole West Coast. And from the simplest, it's the unreinforced masonry chimney. Those just topple in even the most moderate of earthquakes uh, can be very damaging. And not only can they damage, be damaged themselves, they can really increase damage to a house. Uh, the second is the most common is that the house is, is just older. And so it was constructed before building codes really were as advanced as they are now. And the house is not properly anchored to its foundation and it has a crawl space under it that's not braced. And so that's a really uh, pretty easy thing to retrofit with bolts and, and plywood. Um, the, the next one that we find, and I always say to people, if you've been to San Francisco, you know what this looks like. It's the single family soft story house, 
So uh, with the introduction of the automobile, we took out all the elements that resist earthquake forces, which are walls. We put in a great big giant open garage uh, on the first floor and that big garage door took out the elements. And so that we call that a, a soft story single family. And then the most dangerous, fortunately not the most common is the hillside home that isn't properly anchored and is missing some of those other elements, the, you know, the appropriate walls, the appropriate bracing. So there's the top four in wood frame. And then of course the unreinforced masonry is, um, is a very significant and dangerous um, little, little different animal though in terms of retrofitting. Thanks, Janelle. So I'm gonna hand it over to Jessica. And um, so Jessica, I know Salt Lake is focusing on uh, primarily URMs, but you do have some of these uh, older single family wood frame homes that are in need of bracing and bolting. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us if you're a homeowner, how do you learn whether your home is in need of a retrofit? Like who do they go to? What type of questions should they ask? What's the subject matter expert they should be hiring? Hey, great. Yeah, I think uh, really quickly, I just wanted to note, you know, yes, we, we might see some of these, these same uh, deficiencies that Janelle has just listed here in, in Utah, but the reason we have unreinforced masonry or so many unreinforced masonry buildings estimated anywhere from over 120,000 120, of these buildings, many of which are single family homes, um, that comes largely out of a code adoption or, or maybe just a not an adequate recognition of the high level of seismicity that we have in the Wasatch Front region due to the fact that the recurrence of our earthquakes is very low. Um, so uh, we had uh, adoption of a code that prohibited the use of unreinforced masonry in 1975 or 76, um, but the we have a very long transitional period for unreinforced masonry. You start to see reinforcement being used by various structural engineers and builders in the mid fifties, gets really pretty common by the mid sixties. So uh, I would say to uh, a homeowner, the, the best place to start is to um, take a look at the parcel history that should be listed um, as public information on your home. If it is listed as a brick structure uh, before the mid 60s, um, it is worth, you know, you, you have a high likelihood of having unreinforced masonry. That unreinforced masonry can occur in two, two common forms. Um, in some of our very charming uh, turn of the century bungalows, you can see um, header courses of, of clay masonry where those, those, those bricks are turned 90 degrees to interlock layers of clay masonry. Um, but one that might be a little harder to discover is a home that might have a traditional brick veneer without those header courses that's backed by an unreinforced concrete masonry unit wall. And so that's really uh, something that's unique to Utah. There's just a prevalence of those types of structures in our community. And a lot of them are made up of six inch uh, concrete masonry walls. So if you know you have header courses in your wall, you know you have URM. If you know you have six inch concrete masonry units behind your brick veneer, you know you have URM. Um, if it's a little harder to perceive those, those structural systems, um, I would recommend going to a licensed structural engineer, 
preferably someone with experience in existing structures. Uh, engineers are very creative. They know which parts of the attic to crawl into and, and, uh, and what you can see from an open space from your connection. Uh, here in Utah, we have a lot of basements. Um, so when you see that connection, uh, from a foundation wall or or worse, a rubble stone wall that forms your basement foundation wall to what's above, it can tell you a lot about your structure. And how difficult are these retrofits to complete? What kind of disruption is caused? So the short answer is it depends. Single-story projects will be more straightforward than multi-level or two-story projects. Um, and then when it comes down to uh, the, the level of complexity, really where those bearing walls exist matters. For instance, if all of your walls and your structural elements occur in open living spaces or bedrooms, um, there are fewer finishes to disrupt, to access those walls, to tie those uh, roofs to floors, um, or to add uh, additional wall elements if necessary, um, right? That would be your, your more significant retrofit. Um, but for instance, if those elements occur behind kitchen cabinets, uh, that's a significant uh, uh, effort to both remove and replace those, those items. So kitchens and bathrooms can, can add those complexities uh, to the project. I guess my last, last two questions is how long does it normally take to do those retrofits? And are there any mistakes that homeowners tend to make when they decide to retrofit? Okay, so I would say, again, it's it, there. these are dependent on the complexity of the building itself. And then whether you've got some good luck on where those where those elements need to be accessed from with your finished spaces. Um, so, you know, given current construction pressures, um, I would say for a, a fairly straightforward um, single story home where we're just connecting up our, our roof elements to the walls. Um, I would say just looking at like a three month minimum, um, just, just, you know, set yourself up for <laughs> not being disappointed. Um, Cause I, you know, again, right now our, our builders are, are just really, you know, they're, they're full. And, uh, and then if we're looking at a more significant seismic retrofit, we're talking about over a year. So uh, common mistakes or pitfalls, um, I would probably say scope creep. Uh, you, as you can imagine, once you start opening up that house, um, you're removing items. You know, if you have a plan to change out uh, cabinets or, or, or do any kind of remodeling that way, there are some efficiencies to going at multiple projects at once. A re-roof would be a, a great example. If you're planning on, on re-roofing, that's the best time to access your roof-to-wall connections. Gives you a lot of flexibility. So by combining um, projects, if you're lucky enough to have the ability to do multiple projects, doing them at the same time can uh, offer some uh, more options to your contractors on construction methods and also help with sequencing. Thanks, Jessica. Um, I wanted to just call out two things that you, you said. Um, you mentioned flexibility and you mentioned connections. And I think for the general public, when you're thinking about what an earthquake does to a structure, um, the connections are what's really important. And I'm, I'm not an engineer. My background is in planning and I'm a little bit of a rock nerd um, not licensed. So I, um, you know, I oversimplify things frequently. But I always like to think of the 
um, the the retrofitting of a structure kind of be like that skeleton bone song, you know, like your your knee bone is connected to your leg bone, your leg bone is connected to the foot bone. Your skeleton is really weak if things aren't connected. And so putting the, your roof and walls together, um, making sure that your, your walls and your foundation are connected are really important so that that structure has flexibility in an earthquake without collapsing. Okay, I, I think that's great. I, I might take a first pass and then let Janelle uh, add, add her two cents. Uh, but I think it is great, that, Amanda, to bring it back to the basics. Um, a lot of engineers will tell you, everything, you can look at everything like it's a beam, right? So the roof is a beam rolled horizontal and it is going to connect all of your vertical elements to, to, to one another. And so the, the term that uh, we, we love as structural engineers is load path, right? We need to make sure that anything that wants to happen at the roof can make its way all the way down through the foundations to the dirt below. So you're absolutely right. We are looking at strong connections from a roof element to a wall element, from a, a floor element to a wall element, from a wall element to a foundation element. So. Janelle, I see your hands up. Yeah, I, I, I love the description. I, I use that song, the head bones connected to the neck bone. I don't know if, even know if I know the song correctly. I love that um, to describe load path. Uh, just the, the good news for the person who has a wood-framed house is that the retrofits can be very, very simple. Uh, the, the earthquake brace and bolt retrofit of your crawl space can be done by a contractor in about two to three days. Um, and on average in California, is about $5,500. So that retrofit is significantly less work and less money and less time, obviously, than an unreinforced masonry retrofit. Um, also, we have plan sets that have been developed that uh, are about to be adopted into the building code that can be utilized by an owner builder or a contractor without an engineer. They're essentially pre-engineered. So that's the, the good news for the, the, the owner of the wood frame house. It's, it's certainly a, a much less uh, intrusive and expensive uh, effort. Thanks, that's a, that's a really good point, Janelle. So $5,500 in California for a wood frame house to brace and bolt to the foundation. Sounds a lot cheaper than having your home slide off of its foundation in an earthquake, which won't kill you most likely, but it, uh, you know, the, the cost of things afterwards to repair and fix might make you wish that it had, right? <laughs> um, so I'm curious, Jessica, how much are we talking for a cost of a uh, URM home retrofit in Utah? I spent some time on this question because, frankly, I have never been a consultant on a retrofitted unreinforced masonry home. But in speaking with um, some folks who've gone maybe just through a schematic level look at their unreinforced masonry home and looking at trying to get it to a cold level uh, retrofit, uh, they were looking at, um, you know, just shy of five dollars a square foot for a pretty light touch um, retrofit, right? We're talking about removing finishes every four feet to connect up those roof trusses to the walls. Um, and of course, the devil is in the detailing uh, on that. Uh, but but again, if we're looking at a more robust uh, retrofit that might require new shear walls or new uh, steel braces, um, something more invasive of that nature, we could be looking at upwards of $30 a square foot. 
And then of course, put, put back of those finishes can, can vary significantly. Um, so I, I did, you know, maybe to kick it over to, um, to our Fix the Bricks team, I, I know, again, they are fixing with that program with bracing the, the chimneys and the roof to wall connections. We saw some very clear evidence of success in those structures after the Magna uh, 2020 earthquake, which was a magnitude 5.7 event and had significant shaking across the across Salt Lake County. Um, but again, that that is going to be those those elements that are really going to help us on the the, uh, the smaller, more frequent earthquakes. Um, so I actually was curious uh, about the average cost of those projects, if that's something that can be shared as well. Uh, if you want me to answer now. So um, as you stated, Jessica, it just depends, right? These a lot of these a lot of our URMs are unreinforced masonry homes. They are prior to 1975. I mean, we see homes as old as um, I did site visits last week. The homes were built in 1895, right? So they're old. So our contractors, when they go in, they they can look on the outside, but once they open it up, they're not exactly sure what they're going to run into. So like you said, there are times that they need to build sheer walls to, especially on the gable ends and things like that. But um, when what our retrofit does is it um, adheres the roof to the wall, right? So they peel back the roof so that they can get to the point where the um, the roof and the wall line up. And then they insert what's called helical pins. And these helical pins are drilled into the masonry. They're folded over and then they're reinforced. And then all of that is pulled back. So they do that on the perimeter of all the masonry walls. And then they also brace the chimneys. So that is what our retrofit is going to entail. And we have seen them. I So Cheyenne and I have had the program for a little bit over a year now. Prior to that, it was in another city department. So in this last year, and Cheyenne can correct me if I'm wrong, um, we see on average, they range from about 18,000 to 30,000. And I think the most expensive one we've seen was 38. Was it? I think it was about 38, huh, Cheyenne? That particular home had like several mason gable wall, mason gables, right? This, the eight gable ends, gosh, I apologize, were masonry, so they had to build sheer walls and such. So um, given all that, so you figure they're peeling it back, they're putting the helical pins, they're replacing the sheeting, they're replacing the shingles. Um, some chimneys require two and three braces if they're really tall. Some homes have more than one chimney. So yeah, I'd say they range between about 18 and $30,000 is what our retrofits generally run. Um, I am gonna just correct Barbara a little bit. I have seen on some of the, cause in Salt Lake City, sometimes we have uh, some particularly small homes um, and then average size homes and sometimes large homes. So on some of these very uh, particularly small homes that are kind of simple, uh, with not too many gable ends, it's not too much of a pitch in the roof or anything. Some of them are coming in kind of as low as you know thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars. So sometimes we see them a little bit cheaper than eighteen, but that could be just a distinction within this you know the super dense city of where we've got some of those very much smaller homes. And I'm going to ask a question: uh, How much does brace and bolt reimburse for this type of work? Right. Or sorry, so, uh, not, not sorry. 
I guess I meant, um, I said brace and bolt and I meant fix the bricks. Oh, fix the bricks. Okay, sorry <laughs> yeah. about that. Sorry. <laughs> um, so the way that fix the bricks work is it's, it's a FEMA grant. So FEMA will cover 75% of the retrofit and the homeowner is responsible for 25%. A little bit, yeah. So there is one other city program that is available. I do believe that we might hit on that a little bit later in the uh, discussion, but yeah, so it's a 75-25 split between FEMA. So the homeowners are coming up between three and 8,000, depending on how extensive the job is, the project. That's pretty reasonable. That's, that's great to hear, Barb. Um, Janelle, did you want to say how much Brace and Bulk covers since we, we started that? Yes, so Earthquake Brace and Bolt provides a flat up to three thousand uh, dollars grant for for the a typical homeowner. We're very excited that uh, a year and a half ago we were able to introduce a supplementary grant for income qualifying homeowners. So if they have a household income of seventy two thousand eighty dollars or less, we'll give them a second check essentially that in most cases will pay for the entire retrofit. So um, once again, we're, we're able to do this. The, the costs are, are significantly less. As we go to our more expensive retrofits, for example, our top story, those can be up as much as $27,000, $30,000. Um, we are doing a percentage of the, the retrofit as well as our maximum. And, uh, and then hopefully someday when we're in multifamily, we'll have a whole other um, percentage. But um, I think that, that one will also require a match by the, the building owner. Thanks, Janelle. Yeah, it's just, it's so great to see that there are that these programs exist. I mean, just as a as a homeowner to undertake these by yourself, that's a lot of money. And so having having funding available through FEMA grants is is really a great way to help both promote equity and that everyone should be able to to have a earthquake ready home. Um, but to you know help with that communication of this is a thing that your home likely needs as well. Jessica, I see your hands up. Yeah, is it okay if I ask a follow-up question on the fix the bricks? Okay, um, I was curious uh, on the projects where um, additional shear walls are added for gabled end. Um, is that actually covered in the FEMA grant program as well? Those additional walls. Oh, um, yeah. So actually. Um, like I mentioned, we took the program over about a year and three months ago. So that is actually an amendment in our scope of work that we got from FEMA. Um, when we initially took the program over, it was just the you know, roof to wall and the chimney bracing. However, we were finding that um, as the contractors were you know, opening up the, the homes, they were saying, because kind of, I believe the, the thought process behind it is if, if we don't shear up these gable ends, then I don't wanna say, is it not worth it, right? Probably a better way to say it than that, but it's not a complete, right? We're not going roof to foundation. So we're just going roof to wall. So to make that as stable as possible, we reached out to FEMA and we did get a scope of work change approved. So they are covered in our particular grant. That's great news. Yeah, you have to have something to connect to, right? Uh, so wonderful. Thank you. Cheyenne has such a great background, you know, with her engineering and 
and to some degree, I'm, I feel like the little rookie sometimes because I'm like, hey, shy, you know, because I think she understands, you know, that portion of stuff better than I do. But I will say I have learned so much because when I when we first took the program over, I'm like, URM, what the heck? What are you talking about? What do you mean the roof is just sitting on the walls? What do you by gravity, you know? And so um, I know she's learned as well, but I feel like I've learned even more. And the contractors, we feel super blessed because once again, when we took the program over, there was one, there was pretty primarily one contractor and we have five coming out to all of our pre-bids now. So we have a super great um, number that are coming out and participating. And they are so great because they allow us to ask them questions as well. Hey, well, you know, when you're looking at this and then when we do the site visits with the structural engineer, um, hey, you know, what about this? And so you learn to start looking at the gable walls and seeing if the masonry is going, you know, all the way up and how new is the roof, do they need, you know? And so um, I believe there's like a lot of feedback and a lot of information that we are able to provide to the homeowners so that they're going in with their eyes as wide open as possible. So they truly know what is being um, done to their home and to let them know, you know, this is a life safety program. And we want you to be able to grab your loved ones, whether your loved one is a kitty or a doggy, or if it's another little human or whatever it is, so that they can be safe um, in a seismic event. So. I picked up on a few words there. Um, I heard life safety a few times. And um, I, I love, Barb, I love how you get to talk one-on-one -on -one with the homeowner and that your contractors are so open to answering questions. And, and it just seems like a really positive environment. How are you communicating the concept of performance to your homeowners? And I, and I ask this because this is something we're grappling with in Seattle. So we're we're um, creating a minimum seismic standard for the retrofit of URMs that is very much a collapse prevention. And I think a lot of people assume, um, I think they think that the building code in general is higher than than life safety anyways. And this is starting to touch on some, you know, engineering technical terms. But generally, you know, building code for new buildings is life safety. And if you want the building to be functional after an earthquake, there's more engineering that needs to go into it. You're building higher than code levels. And um, I know as a non-engineer, it took me a while to grasp that. So I'm curious, Barb, when you're talking to people and you're saying, we're asking you to make an investment in your home, for the seismic retrofit of, of your house. Uh, by the way, are you still gonna have damage in an earthquake or how, how are you explaining that to them? Um, so first of all, um, most of the people that we work with, they've waited quite a while to get these retrofits done. So they're super excited when we finally show up on their doorstep, right? And so, the very first thing we do with all of our homeowners is we have what's called a site visit and we go through and we kind of explain every detail of the program. But I think that's like one of the very first things that Cheyenne and I like to convey to all of our homeowners is the fact that this is a life. I mean, that's exactly what we tell them. This is a life safety program. We would love to save your home. We would love to go roof to wall and we let them know 
there are absolutely more extensive um, upgrades that can be done. However, that's the little however that we give them, that um, FEMA wants to be able to touch as many homeowners as they can. So by doing the roof to wall, we can really stretch those FEMA dollars even more so. Because in what like the kind of the analogy that I like to give them is right now, if there's an earthquake, you're, and I mean, we're pretty open and I don't wanna say graphic with them, but we tell them, you know, in an earthquake, your walls are gonna go out and your roof is gonna come in. Those are the, the chances, right? However, if we do those roof to wall attachments and we brace that chimney, well, now your home is moving in tandem, right? So we're moving together. And like I said, once again, and I mean, if I see littles around or if I see doggies or kitties or whatever, I'm like, it gives you that time so that you can grab everybody up and all of you can be safe. And once again, we get to that life safety factor. Shai, did you want to? Yeah, I'll just tag on to what Barb said. So, I mean, we are incredibly lucky where we get to go out and have these site visits. So we get to have face-to-face -face communication with these homeowners. So when it gets to some kind of the, you know, some of this technical stuff, you can just really like, I mean, when you have a face-to-face -face conversation, somebody can really meet these folks where they're at. So, I mean, you don't have to tell them the very specific details that you'll get from your stamped engineering drawings about how they'll be placing this helical pin in the roof. But you can kind of, I mean, once you understand the concept, you can explain it a lot better. You can just use different terms um, that aren't quite so technical. Um, I actually, when I carry on my backpack, when I'm going out to these, I keep a helical pin in my backpack and I'll pull it out, you know, using visuals helps and I'll pull it out and show it to them and explain that, kind, you know, explain to them exactly how it works. So I just really think um, we're super lucky by giving to getting to have these face-to-face -face conversations because you can just really meet folks where they're at and um, talk about it until everybody's comfortable with the communication that's happening about the work to be done. Do you have any advice for or best practices for talking about these kinds of concepts with um, non-English speakers or English as the second language? Yep, my advice is I send Barb. Yeah, fortunately, um, I am bilingual. And so um, Spanish is definitely my second language. I mean, I've learned it as I've gotten older. So maybe the good part of that is I couldn't technically tell them what we're doing anyway. I couldn't be like all super technical. So it would just be a matter of explaining to them, like literally explaining to them. Um, so our, Shai and I are fortunate in that I do speak Spanish. However, our department that we work with, I happen to be one of the people that they come to when they need things translated, but we make a very big effort to make sure that our Spanish speaking community um, is given the materials that they need in the languages that they need. Now, in the year and something Cheyenne and I have done it, I have yet to have a Spanish speaker. Um, however, if we ever needed to, I would be able to do that. And we have um, two other people within our office that also speak Spanish. So let's pretend one day I wasn't around or whatever, then Cheyenne could certainly turn to one of them to help her through it. Um, but it is a big effort that we make and I'm sure everyone does, right? Because I mean, really it's hard enough to kind of understand in English, right? Let alone if you're a Spanish speaker trying to pick up on it and, and understand. So we are fortunate in that sense. 
Janiel, what about you? How does, uh, how have you mastered that? Yes, so our program is a little bit different in that we now, uh, uh, we've now retrofitted over 22,600 houses and we have about a thousand contractors on our directory. So the scale is, is obviously bigger. Um, once again, uh, just a little different program. Uh, it's just so common in California to have this, this problem. Uh, so because the scale is bigger though, we can utilize mass media. We can utilize television and radio and print. And we've gotten great cooperation from um, particularly Chinese and Spanish uh, media, radio, television, print. And so they've been fantastic. And um, also because there's so many people now who have been retrofitted, we have what I consider to be social, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, <clears throat> social capital, social capital in that people hear about our program from their friends, their neighbors, their relatives, uh, you know, their, their real estate agent, that's the most exciting one. And um, so they're hearing it from people that they trust, which is really important. We learned very early on that when we first went into a community giving money away, they go, who are these guys? What do they want to sell us? And so by working with people who are in the community to, to uh, have them really understand that they have this vulnerability, they should do something about it, has just been really successful for us. We also utilize translation services with our customer service uh, folks. So they can, they can contact just about any, any language can be provided through those translation services. Um, but the other thing is, um, so I love the fact that you have contact with the homeowners. That's my very favorite part. And I, I, I really miss during the pandemic being able to do personal in-person presentations throughout communities. That's where not only do you, you convey information, but the most important part is you're listening. You're listening, you hear what their questions are so that you can tailor the program to the people who need it the most. Um, so the, with regards to the benefit, the cost, cost benefit, we actually worked with the Pacific Earthquake Engineering Research Institute that's a, a number of universities throughout California to quantify what exactly are the savings to retrofit the earthquake brace and bolt house. And it's really interesting because I think all of you know the probabilistic nature of earthquakes is a little difficult. So what we did is we took some scenario earthquakes that were not the big one, but rather the more likely one, you know, the design-based earthquake. So for example, the 7.0 in San Francisco, we said, hey, the worst performing house, the two-story house with wood siding can have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of savings. If you do this five to $10,000 retrofit, and um, so that information, you know, we, we had social scientists working with us on that project to develop our language to be able to, to convey that information to people. So um, language is so important. Um, you know, even, even the English part, of course, is hard uh, to convey, a, you know, high consequence, low probability event is so difficult, but it is so important to be able to have people hear that in their, in their first language. So fantastic um, that, that you're there for them. And with your, your bilingual, um, I, my Spanish, unfortunately, is I think about the level of my two-year-old daughter, I mean, granddaughter, granddaughter. Um, so very, very important though. If I can chime in there, I, I definitely think, you know, uh, when Janiel, as you were talking about, you know, the, the cachet of, of having that uh, brace and bolts retrofit. I happened to be sitting next door to someone who did that to their Oakland home uh, years ago. Um, 
but the I definitely see it here, especially following the Magna earthquake, um, really some I, I would I I would characterize it as jealousy from folks that are just outside those Salt Lake City boundaries, and uh, so I I think you know as the more I've learned about the California Earthquake Authority, you know clearly just a a really great organization and you guys are doing so much good work that we're trying to learn from here in our communities but we are doing this all on shoestring budgets right with largely with that help from from FEMA and you know as we're trying to build that momentum we just have to take every win we can and so I'm so thankful for uh the work that that Barb and Cheyenne are doing um, we definitely see it making a difference in um, the understanding of the communities uh, around Salt Lake City. You know, I wanted to add one thing is we, you know, with, with the ArcGIS capabilities, you know, these graphics that you can do, uh, it is so wonderful to be able, we, we track every EBB house, to pull up the zip codes that we were in in 2013 when we started and to see the dots grow. You know, we have different colors for each year. And, you know, as I said, they're hearing about it from their neighbors. They're starting to socialize that this is what they need to do. The other thing is that there was a paper written by a professor who was formerly at um, University of Colorado uh, that said that they used Zillow data and for houses that had listed in the MLS that the house had been retrofitted, they saw an increase in 17% 17 in the sale price. So that's what we want to get is that socialization that when somebody in Salt Lake City, you know, sees this beautiful house they fall in love with, sees those, as you said, you know, the, the, the coursework that's telling them that it's, you know, unreinforced masonry, um, knows that, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. And I know it's going to cost me about this much. And that starts to become part of that transaction and part of that, that, um, that touch point that we have with them when they buy a house. This is a tricky question, uh, and Janila, this wasn't, you can, we don't have to answer this. It wasn't pre-scripted, but I'm just curious. These, both of these programs are very much targeted at the homeowner. What about renters or tenants of these buildings? So they, your awareness materials have worked. They know that their building is vulnerable, but they don't own the building. You know, some of our most vulnerable populations are renters, and we know that. And we know that in California, it's you know, just under 50% of our, our residents are renters. And we, we also know from statistics that um, many renters live in older structures. And, you know, as our, as our, um, our colleagues from Salt Lake City mentioned, you know, there are benchmark dates for all of these. And typically it's the older house that has the most vulnerability. In our enabling legislation that created the, the mitigation program, they said owner-occupied. and I. I think the reason was let's not give money to large corporations that have large um, portfolios. And so we've been dealing with that, that language because we, we want to change that. We want to start to do rental houses. It will be a very different sell though, because that is um, all going to be all about return on investment. Now, the good news is we do have these studies. We have the 17% in terms of sale price. We have the hundreds of thousands of dollars in savings. But once again, low probability event. So we're going to have to utilize our marketing and our communication consultants to help us find the right language to sell that to the, the building owner. Um, I know that we, you can find public, uh, publicly available information that tells you if a, if a building owner owns a certain number of houses. So we can deal with that you know, number of houses. We can say, hey, 
If you have a portfolio of five or less houses, you qualify. Um, and then um, I, I, I really do hope that we'll be able to make a difference in that rental market as well. And then of course, if we do have the opportunity to, to move into the multifamily retrofits space, of course, that's you know all about renters. Then the difficulty becomes you would like to, to focus on the socially vulnerable. Um, so how do you figure that out? If you just use geography, you miss owners who um, have lots and lots of you know income qualifying renters in their buildings, but it's very difficult for a, a building owner to get financial information from their tenants to qualify for a program. All challenges, not deal breakers, um, but a really important thing that we need to do is to move into that rental market. Amanda, if you don't mind me just chiming in real quickly. So a lot of what like Cheyenne and I do, right, it's contingent on the scope of work that was written into our grants with FEMA. Um, however, exciting thing is um, with our, so when we first, initially they were called PDM grants, the pre-disaster mitigation grants, and now it's the BRIC application. So as we as we submitted the BRIC application for the la this last year, which I believe we find out in August, and then we are currently working on the current BRIC application, we have now included multifamily in our um, in our BRIC application. So for this last year, I believe we applied for 150 single family and 25 multifamily, and it, it may not sound like much, but right, you start somewhere. And so, um, so we have 25 and we will find out like in August if we received funding for that. Um, so we're trying to get into the, um, into the realm of, of starting to add those multifamily homes to the homes that we start to retrofit. Because if, if we're talking life safety, right? If they're rentals, if they're multifamily, there's even more people um, and every life is, is important regardless if it's single family, multifamily, whichever it, it, but if we can start moving into that realm, we can pull even more people into like our vulnerable renters, as Janiel mentioned, right? Keep them um, safe as well. So that's exciting for us. We're, we're working on that and we're crossing our fingers for the next round of funding. Yeah, Salt Lake City is a very uh, interesting community that we live in. Like we're all, you know, it's a very tight community. And we actually do deal with quite a few landlords, even just in the single family homes. Because uh, there is quite, you know, we do have quite, I don't think we're at the 50% like California is by any means. But we do have quite a bit of the investment properties around here. And we work with investors uh, on these single family homes quite regularly. Um, and I only know that because I have to coordinate with tenants sometimes about when we're coming out to do site visits or pre-bids to like take a look at the house. And so I would almost say maybe anywhere from like eight to 10% of the projects that we've worked on in the past a little over a year have been investment properties. That is so interesting. Um, I, and it's really neat to see the evolution of these programs. Um, you know, like Salt Lake City's Fix the Bricks is pretty new. California, your Brace and Bolt has been around for a while, but you're, um, you know, shifting into different types of vulnerable structures. And, you know, there's so much jealousy for my seat over here in Seattle, but I'm also over here scrambling, taking notes. Um, but I'm curious, how did these programs get started? You know, these are uh, high consequence, low probability events. Uh, 
these are really complicated grant applications. It's really competitive. How did you get these programs started? What or who prompted the creation of them? Um, and let's start with you, Janiel. Yeah, so, so ours is very, very unique in that, um, to try and do this as quickly as I can, it all came, comes back to 1984 when the state of California separated earthquake insurance from the insurance policy for single family residences, but created the mandatory offer law that said, if you write a homeowner's policy in California, you must offer earthquake insurance. So we had huge take up modeling at its infancy. They really didn't understand their, their overall risk. A Northridge earthquake happened and they lost their shirts. The insurance company said, whoa, with this mandatory offer, we're, going, we're not going to write policies in California. In fact, many of us are just going to pull right out. We're going to, you know, pull out of California. And so there was a huge crisis. Uh, you know, there was like $40 billion in damage, half of that residential, half of that insured. And they had no idea that's what they were on the hook for. So the legislature stepped in to create the California Earthquake Authority, not an agency, but a unique instrumentality of the state created by legislation. And so in the insurance code is a description of who we are, what we do. Mitigation was part of that from day one. They wanted us to do mitigation, not only transfer risk, but reduce it. So they said, you must take 5% of your investment income and put it towards medication, medication, mitigation every year. So it's about $5 million today comes to our mitigation program. Now the, the good news is that's coming from policyholders Policyholders get something back for that. In that, with that outwardly facing program, we don't have to pay taxes on their premiums. So they they way above $5 million a year are benefiting from that, but the state is benefiting from this mitigation program. So with that legislation that said, you, you know, we want you to do incentive programs, grants. So we were all lined up, ready to go. I joined in 2011. They had to uh, pass a law to create my position. And I had about $25 million we knew the way to go was to leverage that with FEMA funding, and that's what we've been able to do. State funding is, is there as well, but a little bit more uh, tricky. It comes with more strings, and state funding is taxable at the federal level, whereas FEMA funding is uh, a Stafford Act. So there is legislation pending right now at the federal level to make these grants not taxable, and I certainly hope that happens. Because this dance, when we use state funding that's taxable and federal funding that's not, is crazy. But that's how we started, created by the state of California, given full support. We've gotten some state funding. We've had great success with that FEMA funding. That's great. And what about um, Fix the Bricks in Utah? How did that get started? So I knew this question was a coming. And so I actually, so once again, I must say we've had the program for a year and a couple of months. So we were not involved in the program in its inception. So I reached out to someone and unfortunately he wasn't able to get back with me before we were meeting today. I did look up some like brief history on the program. I do know that um, it was in 2016 that Fix the Bricks was instituted. That was the first year that we received funding. Um, if I can make an educated guess here, and actually it's not a guess, it is in writing, and I'm gonna scroll over to my little, the information that I found was, it looks like there's probably around 30,000 um, brick homes in Salt Lake City. 
but it says that there are over 144,000 URMs scattered across all of Salt Lake City. Jessica, I don't know if you have any numbers or whatever, but that's the number that was in there. So I'm guessing that because of the large number of reinforced masonry homes and the fact that we are on fault lines and such, it, it really um, prompted city leadership to move forward to apply for this awesome funding through FEMA. Jessica, I don't know if you have any further details on it. Well, I can tell offer what I know. Um, yeah, I think the 144,000 is maybe a higher end estimate, but I think you're definitely in the ballpark. I think uh, anybody who even wants to bring it down, I think 130 is the small end number. Um, so it's a significant number. Um, and uh, the the program itself is, again, it's a an incremental improvement to these structures. And it's based off a guide that was written, I believe, with another FEMA grant back in the 90s, um, happened to uh, be written by some of my former colleagues at Reveley Engineers through a, a, a FEMA grant through the, that was applied through the state. Um, and so, uh, you know, this was the guide itself was intended to be kind of a DIY to help people make these make these improvements. So it had been in the um, community for a while. Every once in a while, I tell somebody will so excitedly tell me they've got a copy of it, right? And spiral bound. Um, and and so it it really was something that was around. They realized that you know people needed a little bit more help, I believe. And you know, so I think it was a a partnership with the state and the city um, as as they looked at how can we help um, help people actually implement these these processes. And I believe that's when the grant process started. Um, so uh, pretty exciting stuff. And I know there's a lot of efforts to bring a little bit more muscle to this program, but in multiple directions. Um, one is to revisit that guide and and offer some upgrade or you know some some newer technology and detailing um, to the program itself. And then the other piece is the state is actively pursuing uh, looking at rolling this program out statewide. Um, we do have a high risk in the Wasatch Front region, but even in St. George, uh, we can have we have regular earthquakes in the southern part of the state near all of the national parks that everybody loves. Um, so there's a lot of good work uh, going to build on on what Salt Lake City has been doing since uh, inception of this program. So it's very exciting. Yeah, and you know, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, Jessica, because I just heard from the state representative the other day. Um, because when we took the program over, we had been in contact with him to find out when the new URM guide was going to be coming out. And I think we're probably close because he called me the other day and we're just playing phone tag. So and then as far as the state's program, Cheyenne and I and our team actually met with the feasibility. They did. They're doing a feasibility report to do a statewide program. And so we have met with them. And I know they're currently working on that to um, hopefully, yeah, get the program broader than just the Salt Lake City area because there's a need for it everywhere. Awesome, Jessica, thank you so much. This is wonderful. Um, and it, it, it's prompting another question. So I'm going a bit out of order, but um, the Fix the Bricks program in Salt Lake, currently Salt Lake only, but with plans to go statewide, that's great. And that's without any, 
mandatory legislation in the state saying that these buildings have to be retrofitted. California has had um, various levels of um, mandatory versus voluntary retrofit programs, and your program has been around for a while. Um, but you're the only state that has a statewide retrofit program. And so for, for all of you, I'm curious, um, for our listeners in other states or, you know, for your guest host trying to create a program, um, what advice do you have um, for creating or building the support to create this type of program? Like, is there a certain political level or office or agency that should be supporting and advocating for these programs? Who has been, you know, a real champion um, to help your program uh, become successful? So in California, we have the California Seismic Safety Commission that really took um, uh, took a lot of responsibility to help with the background information for the unreinforced masonry. You know, in, in many cases, it takes it takes political um, uh, what's the word political um, boldness and far you know reaching and far looking people, people who are uh, kind of above and beyond their, their colleagues in understanding. Uh, it, it, I think we all know that, you know, most of our representatives, they have two year terms. They have to have quick hits and quick wins. And, uh, you know, we're in the business of slow, you know, we're the, we're the, the not the hare, but we're the tortoise. And um, so when you have these people who stand up and understand that these decisions need to be made, that's, you, you grab onto them and, and run with them and give them all the information that they can. Um, so we, we've had we've had more earthquakes, obviously, than, than all of you. We've had quite a, a, a spell of, of uh, very few earthquakes and, and outside of urban areas since not 1994 Northridge. Um, but up to that, you know, 1906. And so with every earthquake, something happened. 1933 schools, unreached schools, they would have killed hundreds of, of people law came into effect. Um, the 1971 earthquake damage to hospitals created the Seismic Safety Act for hospitals. It took 30 years to get a, a program where we had mandatory retrofits. So once again, slow but steady with political um, leadership is very, very important. So the Seismic Safety Commission is there to provide support. They have um, people who are representing all industries who are part of that, that organization and structural engineers who provide them with technical. Um, our organization in the residential sphere is able to push, but I will tell you that all residential retrofits in the single family realm are voluntary. Um, I think that, I, I will tell you that I believe that the unreinforced masonry, pardon me, the multifamily retrofit program in San Francisco, which was really the first large city that did it, it took them 10 years. The CAPS program took 10 years working with the community talking about this. And they were based on damage they saw in Northridge in 1994. So slow but steady, but you start that clock and you start to work on that. And um, what they told uh, people who were in these meetings said is, okay, if we have to do this as an owner, I'll do it. It's going to be painful, I'll do it. But make sure that you make everybody do it so that you even out the, the renter or the building owner playing field. So, um, you know, politically bold, bold leadership with the, the technical community standing right behind, ready to give support and step in to give information. That's that's how California's been doing it. 
it's, I know it seems like we're way, way far ahead. When we look at it, we see an awful lot that we have to do. Um, but you got to start that clock because it takes, as you all know, it takes that, you know, that, that continual working on something for a number of years to make any profit. And I might chime in there as a member of the Utah Seismic Safety Commission. Um, uh, you know, the state of Utah is considerably different in many ways. Uh, we have a smaller population. We have a smaller geographic area. Uh, we have a much longer recurrence interval between our earthquakes. Luckily, we have never seen a fatality in our major earthquakes, which you know, we have seen earthquakes um, in the upper magnitude six and seven, low sevens, um, but they have been in, in largely rural areas, right? Um, and you know what, what I see when I look at as a frustrated you know, uh, volunteer on the Utah Seismic Safety Commission um, is a, a correlation between uh, dramatic, bold action um, and a body count, right? Um, there, there have been some, some significant tragedies in, in some other states that we haven't seen in Utah. Now, that doesn't mean I think we need to wait. <laughs> I certainly don't think that. Um, and so in a, if I may say it, a don't regulate me state like Utah, a mandate um, would just be a political death sentence uh, for, for an elected official here. Um, and so we are left to um, persuasion and uh, partnership uh, relationship building. And the Utah Seismic Safety Commission, um, I believe, Barb, you were referencing John Crofts, who's our earthquake program manager. He is our one state employee that's specifically tasked to uh, to to worry about earthquakes, right? That's one person at the state level, and he does a wonderful job. I've uh, you know he's moved some mountains um, uh, on some projects that I've worked with him on, um, but that's a that's that's a not a lot of of, of support. So uh, the Utah Seismic Safety Commission has been partnering with a stakeholder engagement entity um, by the name of Envision Utah, and. You know, what we're doing is combining the technical knowledge and support that we have on the Seismic Safety Commission with this longstanding community relationship with uh, local industry and interest groups. And so slowly but surely, we're building on um, conversations and successes, uh, utilizing our, our partner's skills in communication and delivering the message. Sometimes we technical folks uh, fall short. And so we have made a good partnership. And, um, you know, I'm optimistic that we will, we will continue to gain traction, but it is a very, very slow process. I relate to that tortoise analogy. You know, Jessica, you just reminded me of, of uh, something. I, I mentioned the CAPS program, which is this San Francisco's kind of residential focus on what they needed to do that took 10 years. And, you know, one of the realizations that they made, and this goes back to that whole renter uh, percentage in California, is that 60% that, that of the residents of, of San Francisco were renters. And, in, in, you know, renters make up a variety, you know, a, you know, it's a spectrum of who they are, right? We've got the very vulnerable renter, you know, who, who really needs us to be uh, assisting them and making sure that their housing is resilient. And then in the San Francisco Bay Area now, and particularly now after the pandemic, we have got the, 
you know, the tech worker. The tech worker doesn't have to stick around if there's no housing for them. They can up and move. They are transient. They can get a job anywhere. They can work anywhere. And so the dynamics of, um, of the residential uh, demographic in California are really playing into, I think, some of these ordinances that people are realizing that if, if we don't have housing for this very, very important, um, you know, kind of workforce, as well as to protect our vulnerable community, um, then, then, you know, we're in a world of hurt. <clears throat> Amanda, and I do realize that Cheyenne and I, we work in the capital city, right? We work in the metropolitan, you know, city of Salt Lake. However, um, I have found, like our city council and our mayor, they have a very vested interest in Fix the Bricks. And um, we report to them a lot, our numbers and um, just, and I, I don't know if we're gonna necessarily get to this question. So I'm just gonna throw it out here now, but like what for the way we handle fix the bricks is it's first come first served, right? The very first people that applied are the ones that we are hitting first. However, we have a program um, similar to you, Janiel, our city council appropriated $84,000 towards homeowner match. So that, however, is income-based. You have to be low to moderate income. So as long as you are at or below 100% AMI, the area median income, your 25% will be covered. So then that retrofit is not coming out of the homeowner's pocket at all. So to me, that shows how vested our city council and mayor are in the program. And so, you know, even if it starts, you know, at that level that you start, kind, you know, you have your constituents or whomever starting to say, hey, my council member, you know, we're concerned about this, we're concerned about that, you know, to try and start getting the ball rolling. And we are a subrecipient to the state who's a subrecipient to FEMA. So we go to the Utah Division of Emergency Management. So I know sometimes when Cheyenne and I have inquiries from people, we refer them to the Department of um, Emergency Management, the state, um, because they are the ones that are also looking into the, the statewide program. But I'm thinking, you know, we you can even start at the level of your just your local government, your local you know, and my other suggestion is Cheyenne and I have learned a lot of stuff, right? Dissecting through this and getting the program running and, and such. And if, if someone is interested in a program or even if you're not in the same state, even if you're not, I would reach out to people like in California or people like us here in, in Salt Lake now that we have these programs, because there's a lot that we've learned by you know, trial and error and figuring things out and can certainly give, you know, piece of advice going, hey, you know, I'd really make sure this is in order before you do that. Um, just because in the long run, it's going to um, save you a lot if it comes to procurement or securing funds or, you know, or serving that low to moderate income um, population, right? Like right now, it's first come, first serve the way we're handling our, our FEMA recipients. But that may change come, you know, in a few years. But anyway, that's my thoughts. No, that, that's really interesting. Thanks, Barb. Um, so I know we're we're starting to run out of time. Um, and so I think I'm just gonna ask one final question. And I think we'll all have maybe different 
different answers, but understanding that, you know, currently inflation is high, loan rates are high, construction costs are high, um, you know, building owners, homeowners, um, we're all dealing with different things. So like, you know, in San Francisco, they've got building owners with vacancies, you know, a lot of homeowners are, you know, they're either stuck in their homes because of the mortgage rates or, um, I guess my, my, my question is, um, how would you convince someone to make the investment in their seismic resilience? Yeah. So I, I, I'm happy to start because I want to tell you about um, in like 2014, our very first house that we retrofitted with earthquake risk and bolt, this absolutely lovely man uh, was the owner. We asked him if we could come and film at his house. We wanted to show the construction show and interview him and completely unprompted when asked, you know, how he felt about the retrofit, he said, I sleep better at night. I sleep better at night. And I thought that, you know, what, what's that joke? That's, and that's what we're going for, you know, because that is what we're going for. And, and so what I try to do when I, and I, as I said, I do my best work in person because it's the opportunity to listen. Um, but what I try to convey is I'm not chicken little. I'm trying not to be chicken little. The sky, maybe the sky's falling a little bit, but I have solutions. I've got, I've got some pretty good umbrellas, you know, to catch that sky. And, and the, the nice thing about earthquake risk and bolt is because of the, the cost benefit and because the costs truly, particularly with this grant, are within reach of, of quite a few people, that um, it is a solution that when explained to them carefully and with pictures and with some of the data that we have about the cost benefit, what you could save, you know, we've got now 22,600 houses of worth of data. Um, we, we, we use um, uh, homeowners who've gone through the program will do videos for us. So with all of that, we're trying to help them feel supported. So, so that, Amanda, is, is how we're convincing is, and we're, we're taking that tortoise route and saying, if you signed up this year, this might not be the year. In many cases, life gets in the way. What I'm hoping is that we continue to have support from FEMA to have a program that's not a, a flash in the pan, but one that's here to stay, to progressively make California more resilient. And if we, if we have that commitment from the federal government, we can take great strides, great strides to be inclusive throughout our state. Um, I think I would echo, you know, basically what Anjanil said, it's especially because like I said, when I do those, when we do those site visits, right? I, I tell them, I'm like, you know, this is for you to grab, you know, and you see the family pictures on the wall. And those of us who have pets, we know our pets are our children as well, right? So as I'm seeing the doggies and the kitties and, you know, just like, this is the opportunity. That's why I love working with it and working with the homeowners so much, right? This is the opportunity, you know, for you to grab your loved ones, for you to be safe in, in the case of a seismic event. And with generally with the people that Cheyenne and I are working with, they've been waiting for this, right? They've just been anticipating us to be like, you're next, you're next. However, you know, there are some, and that's where, you know, you, we might be at a home on the Upper East Side in Salt Lake City. However, we offer that homeowner match grant to everyone, right? You have to, these are, you can't assume because you walk into, you know, and, there, since January, we have expended almost all $84,000 to um, 
homeowners who qualify for that. So that's kind of another feather in our cap that we have, that we have that, that we are able to offer to our homeowners as well. So that, that helps out. But I would say what you do is like, you know, you just say, this is to help you sleep better for you to grab your people that you love, that you want to make sure are safe, um, that you're just that much safer. No, not that much, but, you know, that much safer in case, you know, something were to ever happen. And we definitely live in that area. Yeah, I, uh, Barb makes a really good point. We do get to talk to these people and kind of explain, hey, you know, it's just a life safety. It's for you and your family. But I mean, that's really all that we have to do. It doesn't take much convincing for these folks. I mean, some of these folks have been on this list for six, seven years because we're only funded for, you know, so many projects every year. And we've got thousands of people on a list waiting for this. So it really doesn't, uh, we're not twisting many arms around here by any means. They, they want to go forward 100 miles an hour and get it done. So we are lucky that way. And I would say from uh, my my purview uh, here as, as a consultant in the Salt Lake Valley and a volunteer with the Seismic Safety Commission, um, the talking points that I like to, to use or the, the points that I like to raise is that, you know, you really can take a look at the Christchurch, New Zealand um, earthquake sequences and see that, you know, it, it's not too much of a stretch to say that Salt Lake and the Wasatch Front region, maybe it may be the Utah County segment, maybe the Davis County segment um, could have similar effects, right? Uh, unfortunately, they tragically did have two buildings that had casualties in it. But for the most part, people did that life safety design level did work right it did uh it did work but what happened was a, a really a, just a mass exodus right and when you talk when you you talk about utah and people who live here there are people who are just their roots go really deep and people that come they might just come to ski but then they end up staying until they retire um and so this is a place where people are grounded and so i like to say well uh, do you want to invest in seismic resilience or would you like to move to Boise or Vegas or St. George after a major event? Um, because that is really, you know, the, the magnitude we're talking about here um, with the disruption to our, our economic ability. You know, you can't live in a place where you can't earn a living. Um, and, and so when we look at these problems, you know, looking at retrofitting URM homes, that's one piece of this puzzle, right? We've got other problems to solve. Uh, but, but, you know, as we, as we eat this elephant one bite at a time, uh, this is an important piece of the program. So very exciting. Well, I, uh, I want to thank all of you for your time today and for your passion towards this work, um, Seismic resilience is, um, I, I like how you described it, Jessica, as a very large elephant, and we'll tackle it one bite at a time. And um, I always like to say, as long as we move faster than geology, we're making progress. And, um, you know, I just, yeah, just, well, thank you again so much for your time. This episode of the Ready to Recover podcast series was produced by Crew.org with funding from the National Earthquake Hazards Reduction Program. The podcast transcript and show notes, including links to resources mentioned by the speakers, are available at podcast.crew.org.
You can continue to explore this and related topics by tuning into the other episodes in the Ready to Recover series. Thank you for listening.